Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. First Nephi chapter 2. Well, this chapter is when we are introduced to the first Exodus story in the Book of Mormon. Lehi is told by the Lord to depart into the wilderness and to take his family there. There will be many more exile or Exodus stories as we progress through the Book of Mormon, where there will be a departure from home where there will be sustenance in the wilderness and where there will ultimately be a deliverance. We certainly don't want to miss that all of these exile stories are a type of our own exile from the presence of God while we're in mortality. That is the archetypal Exodus story, we might say. And similarly, requires our departure from home and our sustenance while in the wilderness and our ultimate deliverance through Jesus Christ and his gospel. I think this is why this story of Lehi and his family uh, leaving Jerusalem and all of the subsequent exile stories that we'll encounter in the Book of Mormon uh, have the ability to resonate with us I think it's why we love Alma's statement that shows up later in Alma chapter 13, that we are like wanderers in a strange land. And so in this first section of 1 Nephi chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 focus on this departure from Jerusalem. We then get a very important study in contrasts. In verses 8 through 15, we find how Laman and Lemuel respond to the direction of their father to leave, as it says in verse 11, the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things. In verses 16 through 24, we then see what Nephi's response to this is. So that's the way this chapter is constructed, really. It is the call to leave Jerusalem and go into the wilderness. And then we get response number one from Laman and Lemuel and response number two from Nephi. There's a great deal to learn from all of this. So let's move now to the first section and read verse one. Before reading verse 1, let's remember where we've come to so far with Lehi. We learned about his vision 
in 1 Nephi chapter 1. And Nephi also taught us that Lehi wrote generally about his visions and dreams. Now as we come to verse 1 in 1 Nephi chapter 2, we're made privy to a new dream that Lehi had. And uh, that is what... um, uh, That is what began this journey. So verse 1 says, For behold, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto my father, yea, even in a dream, and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Lehi, because of the things which thou hast done, and because thou hast been faithful and declared unto this people the things which I commanded thee. Behold, they seek to take away thy life. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. I suppose as I read this, that this chapter shows three responses, really, to this command. The first is that it shows Lehi's response. So we'll read about that, beginning in verse 3. And then, of course, it tells us about Laman and Lemuel's response, who really, they uh, they represent the attitudes that were prevalent in Jerusalem that we learned about in the previous chapter. And then we learn about Nephi's response. We see this phrase twice in 1 Nephi chapter 2, the phrase, Blessed art thou. It's directed here to Lehi in verse 1. And the same phrase from the voice of the Lord is directed to Nephi in verse 19, where it says, Blessed art thou, Nephi. It seems that a very high bar is set before one can receive commendation from the Lord in this way. Nephi receives a blessed art thou from the angel, or more specifically from the spirit, when he has his vision in 1 Nephi chapter 11. Nephi's younger brother Joseph receives this commendation in 2 Nephi chapter 3 verse 25. And now blessed art thou, Joseph. Behold, thou art little. Wherefore, hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi. And it shall be done unto thee even according to the words which I have spoken. We find it in Jacob chapter 5, at the very end of the olive tree allegory. The Lord of the vineyard tells his servants, Blessed art thou, because ye have been diligent in laboring with me in my vineyard. Alma receives this from an angel in Alma chapter 8. When he's told to return to the city of Ammonihah, and when so many good things follow that, the angel says in verse 15, Blessed art thou, Alma, therefore lift up thy head and rejoice, for thou hast great cause to rejoice. For thou hast been faithful in keeping the commandments of God from the time which thou receivest thy first message from him. Alma says it to Helaman in Alma chapter 45 after giving him a line of questioning where Helaman says, Yea, I do believe, and yea, I will keep thy commandments with all my heart. After he says these things, in verse 8, Alma says, Blessed art thou, and the Lord shall prosper thee in this land. And this might be the most memorable blessed art thou passage in the Book of Mormon. It's Helaman chapter 10. 
when a voice comes to Nephi, the son of Helaman, and says, Blessed art thou, Nephi, for those things which thou hast done. For I have beheld how thou hast with unwearyingness declared the word which I have given unto thee unto this people. And thou hast not feared them, and hast not sought thine own life, but hast sought my will, and to keep my commandments. So it's a beautiful phrase and relatively rare in the Book of Mormon. But again, we see it twice in this chapter. Lehi is told very specifically in verse 1 why he receives this commendation from the Lord, why it is that he is blessed. It says, because of the things which thou hast done, and because thou hast been faithful and declared unto this people the things which I commanded thee. That's pretty similar language to uh, the way that Nephi was spoken to in Helaman chapter 10. And we can remember Lehi's uh, sense of, of, of duty after he receives his vision in 1 Nephi chapter 1 to preach to the people of Jerusalem and to call them to repentance. And he most certainly did. And the Lord acknowledges here in verse 1 that, Behold, they seek to take away thy life. This can be seen as a reason, then, that the Lord is sending Lehi and his family into the wilderness, and that is to protect him. Uh, However, we know that there is a much greater purpose behind them going into the wilderness, and that there were many other prophets that were contemporary with Lehi that did not receive this assignment. It's useful to ask why, then, was it Lehi among uh, others who could have gone into the wilderness in the way that he did? We can certainly tell from the previous chapter and from other clues that we will read uh, later in the record that Lehi was very accomplished. Here's some helpful commentary from the Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, which I'll I'll probably subsequently refer to as the Ogden-Skinner commentary. But they say this, The Mediterranean world was alive with mercantile activity in this period of time, with Syria and Canaan serving as a hub of sea and land commerce at the place where continents and cultures came together. Caravans traversed Judah from all directions. Side roads off the coastal highway and the King's Highway the distant frankincense trail, pilgrim's highways and trade routes connecting Moab, Edom, and Arabia with Gaza and Egypt. Lehi could have been a trained and experienced caravaneer and trader. He knew what provisions to prepare and what route to take. Knowing how God has worked in other periods of history, we believe it is not unlikely that he selected a man who, in addition to his spiritual maturity and responsiveness, was already adapted to the particular task at hand, in this case, desert travel and survival, he was the right man for the right time. This piece of commentary is supported, uh, by the way, by a book by Hugh Nibley called An Approach to the Book of Mormon, who lays out similar, uh, a similar line of reasoning. So we discover then in verse 2 that the Lord commands Lehi in a dream that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. This is the first of five times 
within just the next few verses that the prepositional phrase into the wilderness or in the wilderness is used. I think this might show us that as readers, we're being introduced to a theme uh, of going generally into the wilderness and all that that implies, both literally and practically for Lehi's family and symbolically for us. Verse 3 then shows us Lehi's response. Again, the first of the three responses that we can study in this chapter. And it came to pass that he was obedient unto the word of the Lord. Wherefore he did as the Lord commanded him. If other commentators are correct, Lehi was certainly a man of stature. Yet in this verse, he shows the wisdom of obedience. He demonstrates this to us. We can also add that he was as uh, attuned to the coming destruction of Jerusalem as anyone could have been during that time. It was something that was certainly on the horizon, and the Old Testament bears that out. We could read several verses that talk about uh, this destruction that Lehi was prophesying of, and we can see that it most certainly did happen. Yet we know that there were many others who did not accept that this would happen. This is all analogous as, as we approach the last days to having prophets that can see what's coming, even though there are others who don't believe that the coming of the Lord is imminent. And so, as the Lord told us in the parable of the fig tree in Matthew chapter 24, that when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh, so likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near even at the doors. Uh, Lehi was aware of the signs of the the pending destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 4 is most certainly understated. I think all of Nephi's record has an understated quality. But we're still struck by the significance of what it is that Lehi sacrificed. It tells us, And it came to pass that he departed into the wilderness, and he left his house and the land of his inheritance, and his gold, and his silver, and his precious things, and took nothing with him save it were his family, and provisions, and tents, and departed into the wilderness. Rather than trying to take in the possible market value of each of these things that are listed, such as his house, the land of his inheritance, his gold, and his silver, and precious things, I think it's more useful to think about what it would have taken Lehi to acquire these things. It would have taken a lifetime for him to acquire these things. This, this was no small thing. We can set aside for a moment how comparatively rich he was to another person in Jerusalem. Perhaps he was comparatively wealthy, but perhaps he wasn't. Uh, because the the fact is he would have spent a lifetime accumulating these things, no matter how much it was. And notice again that among these things is the land of his inheritance. This, then, is a tremendous act of faith 
and a tremendous sacrifice for Lehi to do this, to go into the unknown in this way and to abandon all that he had acquired and all that he had spent he had spent a lifetime working toward is significant indeed and then consider his feelings in taking his family with him into the wilderness not knowing what the future would hold and subjecting them to the dangers of that journey Laman and Lemuel later in verse 9 talk about all, almost all of these same items that Lehi abandoned. But they will regard this sacrifice as foolishness and something that stems out of the foolish imaginations of his heart. We'll investigate that more carefully in a few minutes. Now we get our geographical bearings in verse 5, and we learn more about exactly who traveled with Lehi. It says, And he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea, And he traveled in the wilderness in the borders which are nearer the Red Sea, and he did travel in the wilderness with his family, which consisted of my mother Sariah and my elder brothers who were Laman, Lemuel, and Sam. We know a fair bit about the distance that they would have traveled uh, from Jerusalem to the Red Sea. It's approximately 180 miles. There are many interesting thoughts about the route that Lehi and his family would have traveled. Here are Sidney B. Sperry's ideas on this. He says, as for a route to the Red Sea, they had two choices. They could go either directly south of Jerusalem by the road through Hebron and Beersheba, and thence through the great wilderness to the northern tip of what is now the Gulf of Aqaba, or they could go directly east across the Jordan until they struck the ancient king's highway and then proceed south or nearly so until the Gulf of Aqaba was reached, Lehi probably used the western route. Well, there are certainly others with their own ideas about the route that Lehi and his family would have traveled. While it's interesting to consider these places, especially if one has uh, familiarity with that region, I think the important point for us to know is that this is about 180 miles, and it's through hot and in difficult country. And at that time, it would have been infested by thieves, marauders. Uh, and that, that point in particular would have been very troubling to Lehi and Sariah as they set off. We are told that they traveled for three days beyond this point. And so this would mean that it was probably something like a 12 to even a 14-day trip one way before they got to this this encampment which uh, Lehi called the Valley of Lemuel. When Nephi lists who it is that came on this journey, uh, we have some reason to believe, and we'll, we'll have an opportunity to talk about this more later, uh, that um, Lehi and Sariah may have had daughters with them as well. Verse 6 says, And it came to pass that when he had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in a valley by the side of a river of water. This can give us a hint as to the time of year that they traveled in since the, the rainy season would have been in many areas of this region the only time when that river would have had water 
otherwise it would have been a riverbed. Then we come to this thing that Lehi does in verse 7, which we, we, might, we might think of how the brother of Jared and the Jaredites responded when they arrived in the promised land. I want to read that very quickly. In Ether chapter 6, verse 12, it says, They did land upon the shore of the promised land, and when they had set their feet upon the shores of the promised land, they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land, and did humble themselves before the Lord, and did shed tears of joy before the Lord, because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. There's that phrase, tender mercies, that we encountered in First uh, Nephi chapter 1. Now if we consider an exile story to be built of a departure and then a period in the wilderness where we are sustained by the Lord and we're tested, our fidelity to his covenants are tested, and then there's a time of deliverance, then this thing that's happening in the Jaredite story is at the point of deliverance. The thing that's happening here in verse 7 in Second First Nephi chapter 2 is not is not when they arrive at the promised land. So it's not exactly analogous to the passage I just read in Ether. However, this is an expression of gratitude that can teach us much. It says, And it came to pass that he built an altar of stones and made an offering unto the Lord and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. While many more challenges are yet to come in Lehi's journey, and the journey of his family, and their ultimate arrival to the promised land has not occurred yet, we can see that he still has a heart full of gratitude that he's offering up to the Lord. Uh, you can imagine his relief after such an arduous journey, and undoubtedly a dangerous journey, that everyone is still safe and sound. This is also a priesthood act that uh, the significance of that is not to be missed. An altar of stones is something that was built by prophets during this period of time. Interestingly, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 25, the manner of such an altar is prescribed here. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. So we can guess that Lehi, in the manner of those practitioners of the law of Moses, would have built an altar of unhewn stones. Then we find that he made an offering. I think an, an interesting detail here is that Lehi has left Jerusalem. He undoubtedly would have done such a thing in the temple if he would have had the opportunity but in this state of exile, he had to, in a way, bring the temple with him by building this offer and offering a sacrifice. I think the, there's a message there for us that uh, we too should carry the temple with us and uh, elements of the temple with us. And our offering today of a broken heart and a contrite spirit is something that we can continually offer to our Heavenly Father in our state of exile. We'll see Lehi and his family doing the same thing in 1 Nephi chapter 7 
after they had acquired Ishmael and his family, and they joined them in the same journey. We also find the Nephites doing this much later under the leadership of King Benjamin. And and they are remembering Lehi's journey when they do this. It's in Mosiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And they also took of the firstlings of their flocks that they might offer sacrifice and burnt offerings according to the law of Moses, and also that they might give thanks to the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Jerusalem, and who had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. So again, it's a specific thing that Lehi is doing here that has a a great deal of precedent. And there were others who did it after him. And again, we can think of our own sacrifice and how that would look to us in our wilderness. We can also take a message from uh, Lehi's obedient attitude here. We can remember this A really critical verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 59, verse 21, that says, In nothing doth man offend God, or against none is his wrath kindled, save those who confess not his hand in all things, and obey not his commandments. I would add to that that it's difficult to confess the Lord's hand in our lives if we can't first recognize it. We most certainly can pray for the ability to discern his hand in our lives. As the Lord reveals this to us, we can then offer sincere thanks to him for his hand in our lives. Here's something Elder M. Russell Ballard said. I often hear people say, I told the Lord this, or I told the Lord that. Be careful not to tell him, but rather to humbly seek and ask your Heavenly Father for guidance and direction. Prayer should be yearning and filled with gratitude. Now we move into the next section of this chapter, where we learn more about Laman and Lemuel's response. We don't move right into their response, but rather we're shown what Lehi does in order to mm, influence Laman and Lemuel. He does something really curious, Lehi, uh, by naming geographical features after Laman and Lemuel. We wonder why he would have done this. We're kind of told, actually, in verse 11, where it says that he spake this because of the stiff-neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. Spake this, meaning that he named a river and a valley after Laman and Lemuel, respect, uh, respectively. But even still, I think it's useful to ask, why would this have helped? Could this naming of these places have helped to turn Laman and Lemuel? Uh, Lehi was a wise man. Uh, why did he do this? Here's some insight from Ogden and Skinner on this. Lehi then began naming various geographical features around the camp. All hills, rock outcroppings, valleys, and other topographical details were and are given names in the Near East. The ancient Hebrew people loved imagery and figures of speech. The most powerful way to illustrate a truth was to find something in the human experience or conduct that corresponded to something in nature. If only Laman could be like this temporary river, or even better, like a perennial river, continuously flowing toward the source of righteousness. Many parents have wished that blessing for children 
uh, experiencing difficulties. Likewise, the prophet Amos pleaded with northern Israelites to, quote, let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty or ever-flowing stream. That's in Amos chapter 5, verse 24. The two prophets, meaning Lehi and Amos, wished that their people would be more constant and stable in their devotion and loyalty to God and his purposes. So this does seem simply to be an attempt by a loving father to influence his two errant sons or perhaps simply to express his desires to them. We read then in verses 8, 9, and 10, And it came to pass that he came to the that he called the name of the river Laman, and it emptied into the Red Sea, and the valley was in the borders near the mouth thereof. And when my father saw that the waters of the river emptied into the fountain of the Red Sea, he spake unto Laman, saying, O that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. And he also spake unto Lemuel, O that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable, in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Imagery like this can certainly only be helpful. And uh, uh, Lehi's use of the terms firm, steadfastness, steadfast, and immovable are instructive as well. Now we learn more about Lehi's great frustration. And for the first time, we start to... Um, learn about the character of Laman and Lemuel. These are the antagonists in this journey. This is our first encounter with uh, mortal antagonists in the Book of Mormon, and we will encounter many to come. Their rhetoric is very instructive to us when we think about the way in which the Book of Mormon, as President Benson once said, exposes the enemies of Christ, and it can become important for us to understand their rhetoric and how best to identify it and to deal with it. So verse 11 says, Now this he spake because of the stiff-neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. For behold, they did murmur in many things against their father because he was a visionary man and had led them out of the land of Jerusalem to leave the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things. And that's almost the same listing as the previous verse that lists these things that Lehi left, which is verse 4. But the context there is that we can see the the, the greatness uh, of Lehi, uh, Lehi's sacrifice. But here, Laman and Lemuel are saying that he left those things, comma, Now I'll continue reading in verse 11. To perish in the wilderness. And this they said he had done because of the foolish imaginations of his heart. And thus Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did murmur against their father. And they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Neither did they believe, as we read in verse 13, that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed according to the words of the prophets. And they were like unto the Jews who were at Jerusalem, who sought to take away the life of my father. So this departure from Jerusalem was not simply a way to escape. 
the prevailing philosophies of Jerusalem because Lehi, unfortunately, had to carry those prevailing philosophies with him in his family because his sons Laman and Lemuel were the embodiment of them. Nephi has already established this, that there were those who sought to take away the life of, of Lehi. And it seems then, again, that his own sons, Laman and Lemuel, were infected with the same disease. The word murmur is introduced to us then in verse 11, and it's repeated two more times. Murmuring is not always open criticism. Uh, Here's a good definition of this from Ogden and Skinner. Murmuring may be defined as half-suppressed or muttered complaint, grumbling behind the scenes rather than being openly critical or disloyal. As we consider uh, Laman and Lemuel's response to, to Lehi's obedience to the Lord, right after we have been so impressed with Lehi's response to the command to leave Jerusalem, we are very unimpressed with Laman and Lemuel, and we wonder how it is that, that they that they could find themselves in such a spiritual state. And then, of course, by extension, how it is that we could find ourselves in, in a similar spiritual state if we're not careful. And Nephi seems to be telling us by using the word murmuring three times in this passage that that is the thing that can get you there. So be careful with murmuring. Here's an interesting quote by Elder H. Ross Workman who said, and and this comes out of the um, uh, October General Conference of 2001, murmuring consists of three steps, each leading to the next in a descending path to disobedience. First, when people murmur, they begin to question. They question first in their own minds and then plant questions in the minds of others. Second, those who murmur begin to rationalize and excuse themselves from doing what they have been instructed to do. Thus, they make an excuse for disobedience. Their excuses lead to the third step, slothfulness in following the commandment. The Lord has spoken against this attitude in our day. But he that doeth not anything until he is commanded, and receiveth a commandment with doubtful heart, and keepeth it with slothfulness the same as damned, That's out of DNC section 58, uh, verse 29. I invite you to focus, says Elder Workman, on the commandment from living prophets that bothers you the most. Do you question whether the commandment is applicable to you? Do you find ready excuses why you cannot now comply with the commandment? Do you feel frustrated or irritated with those who remind you of the commandment? Are you slothful in keeping it? Beware of the deception of the adversary. Beware of murmuring. Elder Neil A. Maxwell gave a masterful talk on murmuring in the October 1989 General Conference. Uh, Many memorable statements are are in this talk. I'd I'd like to read this short passage. He says, after um, going through several scriptural examples of murmuring, and many of them do involve Laman and Lemuel. He says this, In pondering these and various other examples of murmuring, several other things become obvious. First, the murmurer often lacks the courage to express openly his opinions. 
if the complaint concerns a peer, the murmurer seldom follows Jesus' counsel. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother, which comes out of Matthew 18 and 15. Second, says Elder Maxwell, murmurers make good conversational cloak holders. Though picking up no stones themselves, they provoke others to do so. Third, while a murmurer insists on venting his own feelings, he regards any response thereto as hostile. And he provides a very interesting example in 2 Nephi chapter 1, verse 26. Furthermore, murmurers seldom take into account the bearing capacity of their audiences. Fourth, murmurers have short memories. Israel arrived in Sinai, then journeyed on to the Holy Land, though they were sometimes hungry and thirsty. But the Lord rescued them, whether by the miraculous appearance by quail or by water struck from a rock. Strange, isn't it, brothers and sisters, how those with the shortest memories have the longest list of demands. However, with no semblance of past blessings, there is no perspective about what is really going on. This powerful verse in the Old Testament reminds us of what is really going on. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. It's out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2. So since the theme of this chapter, or a major theme of this chapter, is exile and exodus, it's interesting to me that murmuring seems to be related to that particular state or condition. And Elder Maxwell is talking about the murmuring that took place uh, with the children of Israel. And you can read their words, which are pretty stunning when we, when we read their murmurings. An example of that is in Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up into Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth, loatheth, loatheth <laughs> this light bread. Then there's this remarkable statement by the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 11, verse 20, when they say, Because that ye have despised the Lord which is among you, and have wept before him, saying, Why came we forth out of Egypt? Well, we know the answer. It's because... They were enslaved, and the Lord delivered them. We could talk about murmuring a great deal more, uh, but I think it must be in keeping with Nephi's wishes that we do focus in on this concept of murmuring as we read this chapter. It seems to be an important point to him, and it's a state or condition that we can find ourselves in when we take it a, a journey uh, in, in exile whether it's a small one or a large one. We can think of what happened at Zion's camp, for example, uh, in the history of the church. And for us, in our exile and mortality, uh, we have to be very careful with murmuring. It seems almost to be something like a gateway sin. Now it seems that the tone between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel, as we get to verse 14, must have had an element of open confrontation even though it hasn't, that hasn't been shown yet. 
Because in verse 14 it says, And it came to pass that my father did speak unto them in the valley of Lemuel with power, being filled with the Spirit, until their frames did shake before him. And he did confound them, that they durst not utter against him. Wherefore they did as he commanded them. Their frames do shake at another time in 1 Nephi chapter 17, where there is, where there is open confrontation between Nephi and Laman and Lemuel. This verse also seems like a harbinger of bad things to come, because we can see that in the end, Laman and Lemuel did comply, but it was not from their own intrinsic motivation. Then we come to this verse that I think is puzzling in this chapter. Verse 16 says, And my father dwell in a tent. The verse almost seems like a non sequitur. <laughs> now we know that he did take a tent. We're told that earlier. Why it's mentioned here in this place is is interesting. Why is this verse here? Perhaps we could read it this way. And my father, says Nephi, and my father, a man of status, a man of means, a man of station, a man of maturity, a prophet of God, dwelt in a tent. Maybe in a way, Nephi is expressing care towards his aged father. Maybe he's saying that he doesn't like that his father was reduced, and his mother, of course, to staying in a tent. Uh, Nephi had great care and concern for his parents in this journey. We especially uh, learn this in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. When, when they are on a ship. Nephi says, And my parents being stricken in years, and having suffered much grief because of their children, they were brought down, yea, even upon their sick beds. Because of their grief and much sorrow, and the iniquity of my brethren, they were brought near even to be carried out of this time to meet their God. Yea, their gray hairs were about to be brought down to lie low in the dust, Yea, even they were near to be cast with sorrow into a watery grave. Maybe this verse, then, shows Nephi's concern for the fact that his father is in exile at the end of a long and obedient and productive life, and that he cares for him, and he's also showing that Lehi was a man of obedience, and that he as a result of his obedience, incredibly, found himself in a tent. Now we come to this incredible and instructive final passage in this chapter where we learn about Nephi's response to the commands of his father, or in other words, the commands of the Lord through his father. We read this in verse 16. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, being exceedingly young, nevertheless being large in stature, and also having great desires to know of the mysteries of God, wherefore I did cry unto the Lord. And behold, he did visit me and did soften my heart, that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father. Wherefore I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. Nephi seemed to have a deep, a burning desire to, as it says in verse 16, know the mysteries of God. 
We're not sure what the basis of this desire was. Why was it that he was consumed with such a desire? We know that Joseph Smith was consumed with an incredible desire that led him to go to a grove of trees and to pray in faith. We're going to find in a moment that Nephi prayed in faith as well. Maybe it's a bit like Elder Maxwell's reference to that passage in Matthew a few moments ago, when instead of murmuring against our brethren, we should go to them and talk to them directly. Maybe this is an example of Nephi not being sure why the Lord would command such a thing, and so he went to the Lord directly and talked to him about it. I personally think that's very likely, because then we learn in this verse that he did visit me, says Nephi, and did soften my heart. And then we find that the result is that I did believe all the words which had been spoken by my father, wherefore I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. So maybe Nephi is telling us that just at that point, when we're tempted to murmur, if we can then instead go in a different direction, and we can take up our troubles with the Lord directly instead of murmuring against him, then we have the potential of having our hearts softened as Nephi's was here in this verse. We find out what the mechanism of this softening was in verse 17. It was his Holy Spirit, as Nephi says, and we also find that Sam was similarly responsive. Verse 17 says, And I spake unto Sam, making known unto him the things which the Lord had manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And it came to pass that he believed in my words. Nephi's mention of the Holy Spirit here is almost incidentally incidental, because in the previous verse he says, And behold, the Lord did visit me, but he doesn't say that he visited me by his Holy Spirit. Uh, yet, in verse 17, he makes it clear that that is the way in which the Lord did that. Uh, the same is most certainly possible for us. We, too, can approach the Lord in the way that Nephi did, rather than murmuring, and we too can be visited by the Holy Spirit, a gift that um, we have access to uh, through our uh, baptismal covenant with the Lord. And then just to make sure that we're getting the contrast here, Nephi says in verse 18, But behold, Laman and Lemuel would not hearken unto my words, and being grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, I cried unto the Lord for them. There's much to learn about prayer in the verses that follow. And we've already learned some key things about prayer in the verses that preceded this. But we don't want to miss this in verse 18. Nephi says that he cried unto the Lord for them, for Laman and Lemuel. I find it so interesting that for is the chosen preposition here and that it's not against. Nephi wasn't praying against Laman and Lemuel. He prayed for them. He seems to have been praying on their behalf. This gives us critical insight, I think, uh, on, on, on the subject of praying for our enemies, something that the Lord tells us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, here is someone who is living under the law of Moses that is epitomizing the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. 
that's a discussion for another time, but something to think carefully about as well. We can also notice that this follows the formula of the previous chapter, where Lehi was praying in behalf of the people. And that seemed to have been a prerequisite, in a way, for the spiritual manifestation which followed in Lehi's case. And now Nephi is about to receive spiritual insight as a result, it seems, of praying unto the Lord for his errant brethren. Uh, Because something critical happens in verse 19 and 20. Verse 19, And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Blessed art thou, Nephi, because of thy faith, for thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. So Nephi's telling us that the Lord spake unto him. That, of course, is no small thing. And then to receive that commendation that we talked about previously, Blessed art thou, Nephi. Nephi's told that he's blessed because of his faith and because he sought him. He sought the Lord. He tells him that the way in which he sought him was critical too, which is to do so diligently and with lowliness of heart. So there's a formula that we can find here in verse 19 that teaches us again a great deal about efficacy in prayer. Then we come in verse 20 to the first iteration of a promise that will appear 33 more times throughout the Book of Mormon. It reads like this, And inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper, and shall be led to a land of promise, yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands. It's the first part of that, of course. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper. That is the um, oft-repeated promise that runs through the Book of Mormon. In a way, it reflects a collective covenant that the Lord makes with with the people together, as differentiated from, but added to, the individual covenant that each individual person makes with God, something that Nephi will elucidate up upon in great detail in later chapters. This, as I mentioned in the previous chapter, is really one of the major themes of the Book of Mormon, and maybe maybe, maybe we could call it a sub-thesis of the Book of Mormon, the major one being, of course, to come unto Christ, as it is another testament of Jesus Christ. We'll have many more opportunities as we go along in the Book of Mormon to think about the word prosper and prosperity, to think about what it can mean. And uh, we don't want to limit our understanding of prosperity to financial affairs, uh, because that's, uh, that's kind of the way we tend to think of it. Those who prosper in the way that it's meant here do not seem to be immune to affliction. Nephi was certainly obedient and most certainly was an example of someone who prospered as a result. But even he, in First Nephi chapter 15, verse 5, said, It came to pass that I was overcome because of my afflictions, for I considered that mine afflictions were great above all. Joseph F. Smith pretty much dissociates temporal prosperity from the prosperity that's that's meant here in the scriptures by saying, The man who stays with the kingdom of God 
the man who is true to this people, the man who keeps himself pure and unspotted from the world, is the man that God will accept, that God will uphold, that he will sustain, and that will prosper in the land, whether he be in the enjoyment of his liberty or be confined in prison cells. It makes no difference where he is. He will come out all right. That's out of gospel doctrine. This statement from the voice of the Lord continues in verse 21. And inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel against thee, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. And, now the Lord is painting this contrast between Laman and Lemuel and Nephi, inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren. Now taking on this role of a ruler and a teacher over his brethren when he's the youngest is not just an unmitigated pleasure for Nephi. It's a heavy burden. It, of course, calls Joseph to mind, the youngest son, not the youngest, sorry, but the younger son compared to most of his brothers but Benjamin, uh, of Israel or of Jacob and how he bore a similar burden. Then the Lord's words turn very prophetic in verses 23 and 24. For behold, in that day that they shall rebel against me, now this is Laman and Lemuel, I will curse them even with a sore curse, and they shall have no power over thy seed, except they shall rebel against me also. And we will come to wish so much as we move through the Book of Mormon and read this account that Nephi's seed would stay perfectly true so that they would have this blessing. But we find ourselves lamenting ultimately with Mormon that they did not. Then the Lord says in verse 24, And if it so be that they rebel against me, now we can replace they with thy seed, that helps. And if it so be that thy seed rebel against me, then Laman and Lemuel's seed shall be a scourge unto thy seed to stir them up in the ways of remembrance. And this, of course, will happen repeatedly in the record then. In Helaman chapter 12, Mormon pauses to provide us with some editorial commentary. It says the following in verses 1 through 3, And thus we can behold how false and also the unsteadiness of the hearts of the children of men. Yea, we can see that the Lord in his great infinite goodness doth bless and prosper those who put their trust in him. Yea, and we may see at the very time when he doth prosper his people, yea, in the increase of their fields, their flocks, and their herds, and in gold and in silver and in all manner of precious things of every kind and art, sparing their lives and delivering them out of the hands of their enemies, softening the hearts of their enemies, that they should not declare wars against them. Yea, and in fine, doing all things for the welfare and happiness of his people, yea, then is the time that they do harden their hearts, and do forget the Lord their God, and do trample under their feet the Holy One. Yea, and this because of their ease, and their exceedingly great prosperity. And thus we see that the Lord, except the Lord doth chasten his people with many afflictions, yea, except he doth visit them with death, and with terror, and with famine, and with all manner of pestilence, they will not remember him. Nephi and Mormon, both such critical record keepers, in the Book of Mormon, certainly could commiserate with each other on this point. 
and in a way with us as readers. We now have the burden of reading this um, this account of of the opposition party, so to speak, as we move through the Book of Mormon account. And we will learn more, as I've mentioned earlier, about the rhetoric of the enemies of Christ. We can't go for long when starting the Old Testament in Genesis before we encounter Lucifer and then before we encounter Cain and we get uh, Cain's rhetoric. And something similar here is happening in this other testament, another testament of Jesus Christ. We most certainly are introduced uh, to this this same element at the beginning of the record. We'll learn soon from Lehi himself that this is a necessary element in mortality, that this opposition is a necessary counterbalancing effort that provides us with the experience that we need in our own mortal exile to, uh, to choose to latch on to the saving grace of Jesus Christ and to make covenants with him and in that way to ultimately be delivered from this exile. That brings us then to the end of 1 Nephi chapter 2.